0: I'd like to read these words from Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be be feared above all gods, for the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Father, as we come to you this morning in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit, we thank you that splendor and majesty are in your house and are a part of your throne. They're attributes of your very being. And how it could be that the all-powerful Creator God cares for us individually. It's difficult for us to even begin to comprehend, but we take it by faith because Your Word says that it is true. We bow before You today. We submit to Your sovereignty and to what You want to do in each of our lives. We give You glory and ask that You will guide in our study this morning that our ears will be open and our eyes will see in the spiritual realm through the power of the Spirit, those things which will enable us to be strong for the Lord, to enable us to be polished reflectors of the glory of Christ to the world around us. Lord, bless as the word is proclaimed this morning in the service and in every class on this premises. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to First Samuel chapter 10, I'd like to read beginning at verse 17. Thereafter Samuel called the people, brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you today rejected your God, who delivers you from all your calamities and all your distresses. Yet you have said, no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Thus Samuel brought, out, brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought the tar- uh, tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, "'Has the man come here yet?' So the Lord said, "'Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage.' So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away Each one to his own house, or literally tent. And Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. We're looking at, of course, a unique event in the history of Israel the crowning of the very first king in Israel. God has selected this man, Saul, who was up to this point, uh, basically non-entity in Israel, that is, at least very few people in Israel knew of him. And uh, God has chosen him in spite of the fact that he had said to Israel that he is to be their king, and they have rejected him as their king, and, but we discover God did not reject his people. And so Saul has been chosen by Lot. Now, originally, you remember, he was officially anointed by Samuel outside the the gates of Ramah. And now, in order for the whole nation to know that it wasn't just Saul's bright idea, the lot was cast and Saul was chosen. And last week, we ended by looking at the passage in Deuteronomy. We won't go back there again, but where God had given instructions concerning how a king should live in Israel should the day come when Israel would have a king. God, of course, had said Israel was to be under his kingship, but he knew, this is the foreknowledge of God, he knew that one day they would demand a king, and therefore he gave rules concerning how that king should live and how he should reign in the land. So Saul has been proclaimed king or chosen by Lot. He's been acclaimed, long live the king. And now Samuel has given further instructions, possibly simply an elaboration or maybe a recounting of the passage in Deuteronomy, but I believe it was probably an elaboration on that passage because he writes the information down that he gave in this sermon or this message or this time of instruction there before the people. He put this information on a scroll. And the Scripture tells us that the scroll was placed before the Lord, before the Lord, for safekeeping. What does before the Lord mean? Probably means it was placed in the tabernacle. was probably placed in the tabernacle for safekeeping. And there it would be. Now, was the tabernacle at Mizpah this time? We don't know. Scripture is silent as to where the tabernacle was, but it may have been at Mizpah. After the people heard who their new king was to be, and how he was to rule, and how they were to respond to his rule, Samuel dismissed the crowd. And so they went home from Mizpah to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west. They all went down towards their homes from Mizpah. These were a rural people. These were an agricultural people. These were people who only knew primitive transportation and primitive communication. They walked everywhere or rode an animal or a cart. Communication went by word of mouth. So most of them, as they went home, knew that the impact of what had just happened at Mizpah would be very limited, and what impact would come would come very, very slowly. So their lives wouldn't change overnight. Suddenly, they're a kingdom. Well, big deal. What was it going to change? There was no government structure. Uh, there was this man who was chosen. He didn't really know what to do. So, as we find out, he went home. <laughs> you know, what was this going to change? How how different was the life going to be for these people? I think they hoped that what changes did come would be positive ones. Particularly two: pride of nation. We now are the nation Israel, and a standing army an army that could defend us, an army that could cause other nations to be weary, or wary, I should say, of threatening Israel. The last two verses of this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 10 make it clear that support for Saul was not unanimous. There weren't any hanging chads or anything else, but not everybody supported Saul as king in Israel. It's very interesting, you know, they've, this is a bit of a off the mark here, but they make a big deal about the fact that President-elect Bush is a minority president in that he received only 49% of the vote, but when President ele- uh, Clinton was elected in 1992, 92, yes, he only received 43% of the vote, <laughs> you know. So what's the big deal here? Of course, he had 6% more of the vote than Clinton had in uh, 92. Well, of course, this was, uh, Saul was chosen by Lot, but it wasn't a vote. <laughs> it was a vote from God only in the selection of Saul as king in Israel. We're told in this passage that valiant men who applauded the choice, and I think who wanted Saul to succeed as king, joined forces with him, became his loyal supporters, formed sort of a small cadre of uh, individuals who would be there at his beck and call. And we're going to see a little bit further where they may have played a role uh, early on. There was no national capital at this time. There was no palace. There was no government structure. The only government Israel had had so far had been the government of the Shofat. And that was not a government other than simply God instructing one man and one man garnering what he needed in order to do the job. So Saul had nowhere to go. I am now king. I, I shall go to my palace. Uh, right. Mm. I shall go to my capital. Mm. No capital. Okay, I guess I'll go home. And so he <laughs> he went home. And these valiant men went with him, at least temporarily. I think they escorted him home and, and, and uh, had a little feast and gave him a little gift and everything. And then I think they all had to go home or at least some of them had to go home because what are these guys gonna do? <laughs> you know, usually hangers-on, to people who, who have fame or power hang on because they gain something from hanging on. You know, usually you know, some little payola here uh, from being clients to the, to the individual. But Saul didn't have any money. He was just kind of an average guy there. And, and so he couldn't keep a unit of men around him all the time to keep him happy and make him think that he's king. But we are told in this passage that some worthless men refused to accept Saul as their king. In Hebrew, these men are called sons of Belial. Now, we've talked about that phrase before. It's the same term that was used to describe Eli's wicked sons. They were called the sons of Belial. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, that passage says succinctly, And they did not know the Lord talking of Eli's sons. And so by definition, by translation, I think we can take it to these men. They also did not know the Lord. So I think we see that the line of division between the valiant men and the sons of Belial was clearly a commitment to the will of God. God had chosen Saul. They don't want God's will, so they're opposed to Saul. We see that in our country all the time today people who are who stand vehemently against anything that smacks of judeo-christian principles not because they know the principles to be wrong but because they don't want anything to do with god they don't want anything to do with god so the root problem is not one of principle it's a one of faith and commi- it's one of faith and commitment and belief so some of these men were totally reprobate and they wanted nothing to do with god's choice no matter even if Saul was taller than everybody else and had a regal appearance and could possibly be a great king, they didn't even want to find out because they were not interested in what was maybe logical or reasonable because it was God's choice. They wanted nothing to do with it. So what did these sons of Belial do? Well, we, we read in the passage that they ask amongst amongst themselves this question. They say, how can this man deliver us? And I think they said it with a sneer. How can this man deliver us? No, I'm sure there was a bit of a jealousy there. I think each of these individuals thought, why shouldn't I be king? If somebody as average as Saul is selected, why shouldn't I be chosen as king? Saul didn't come from a great family in Israel. Saul wasn't of a line of great warriors. Saul had not demonstrated ability by going out and, and leading a band against the enemy and, and destroying them. He, he was just a plowman. In fact, that's what he ends up doing. He goes back and plows the ground. So they, I think, had no respect for him. And of course, Saul adds to the problem, at least from their perspective, because he seems to be, at least at this time, a rather self effacing person. He doesn't push himself out front. I think that he had, at this particular point, a desire to avoid the press, you might say. I think he was doubtful of his leadership capacity. What we discover is that these men so despised him that they, it says in the passage, they gave him no gift. And I think specifically what this means is they gave him no homage. They didn't acclaim him. They didn't give him any tokens of their submission and their support. Unfortunately, uh, well, and and you notice it says that Saul made no response. Saul didn't answer them. He didn't strike back at them and call them names. He just was quiet, we're told. He was silent. Unfortunately, what we will see in the long run is that these good character qualities of Saul were not grounded in his deep knowledge of God or of his solid commitment to the Lord. And as a result, these qualities will begin to fall away, and in their place will come qualities that are really not rooted in the Lord. Well, let's read about how Saul is put to his first test in the 11th chapter of 1 Samuel. Now Nahash the Ammonite came up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and thus I will make it a reproach on all of Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And he said, What is the matter with the people that they weep? So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came mightily upon Saul when he heard these words, and he became very angry. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. And he numbered them at Bezek, And the sons of Israel were three hundred thousand, and the men of Judah thirty thousand. And they said, they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, Now they're, he's ta- they're talking to Nahash, the Ammonite, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And it happened the next morning that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it came about that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Jabesh Gilead is over here. It's in Transjordan. It's part of the tribal region of Gad. So it's it's on the slope going up towards the uh, the highlands of Gilead there. It's, it's not in the bottom of the valley. It's not clear at the top of the slope, but it's most of the way up the slope towards the top. Here's the Bezik that was mentioned there towards the uh, latter part of the reading where the army will gather. And here's Gibeah clear down here where Saul lives. So the trouble is occurring over here. You see Ammon over here? This is the region of the Ammonites. They lived out over here, and of course part of this land was theirs, part of the land inside the red line where the Israelites... Uh, have taken control, part of that was Ammonite territory. So the Ammonites are not only trying to recover some territory, they're actually taking some territory that never belonged to them in the first place. So they're advancing here. The Ammonites are from Rabbah out here, which is their main city. So they're moving in here. A messenger, Messengers will be sent from here over to here and all the way down to Gibeah and probably beyond there to carry the word of what was happening at Jabesh. The Ammonites were distant cousins of the Israelites. They were descended, you remember, from Lot's incestuously conceived son Ben-Ammi. We're told that specifically in Scripture. They had been partially displaced by the Reubenites and the, and the Gadites. Remember that Reuben occupied the area down in here. Agad occupied the, the area up in here. And Manasseh occupied half of Manasseh occupied the area up here. The other half of Manasseh was over here. So half of Manasseh here, half of Manasseh was here, and Gad was down in here, and Reuben was down in here. So they had been partially displaced by the coming of these tribes into the Transjordanian area. Israel had exhibited considerable weakness. Israel had been punished and beaten around by the Philistines. Now the Israelites had focused their attention on the Philistines. You remember the last battle we read about in 1 Samuel was a battle between the Israelites as they had gathered at Mizpah, not this time for uh, claiming the king, but the earlier time, under Samuel's leadership. They had gathered at Mizpah. The Philistines came up the uh, Beth Horan Ridge and were uh, attempting to make an attack on the Israelites gathered up there, and God gave them a great victory, you remember, and the Philistines were chased all the way back down into the plain from whence they came. So Israel was was preoccupied with the Philistines. Israel had been in a state of relative weakness. And as a result, the Ammonites were taking advantage of this. They were moving in to oppress the Transjordanian Israelites. And they were moving in to recoup land and maybe even conquer more land than they had ever possessed before. Because remember, the primary people that the Israelites had defeated when they occupied this region over the Moabites down in this area here. But up in this area, the primary people they had defeated were the Amorites, not the Ammonites. And They, they are a different people. But the Ammonites and the Amorites were kind of had a fuzzy frontier in through here anyway. Nahash, he is the leader, king of the Ammonites. You know what his name means? Serpent. Very appropriate, I suppose, here. Nahash led them in this attack upon Israel. we don't know how much they had conquered, but certainly they didn't come from Arabah and go straight to Jabesh Gilead. There were certainly areas in between which, as they marched, they conquered, and so they were they were driving a wedge into or through the territory of Gad here as they approached Jabesh Gilead was Jabesh Gilead in a a particularly fortuitous location? Well, probably so because. It was on one of the routes that came down from the Transjordanian Highlands into the, into the Jordan Valley. It was uh, a fairly old city, and so it was obviously of some value, at least to the Ammonites at this juncture. It's about eight miles from the Jordan River, winding up the road there to uh, Jabesh Gilead. You remember when this city last played a significant role? wasn't all that long ago. Well, it may seem long ago, it was last year when we talked about it. But if you can remember back in, the, in Judges chapter 20 and 21, now of course we did Ruth after we finished Judges, so it's been a little while back, last spring when we talked about <coughs> this. Uh, you remember the story of the Benjamites and at the very city of Gibeah, which is the city, uh, city where um, Saul has his headquarters and where he was born and raised was in that very city, if you may remember, that there was an attack on a Levite's concubine, remember? And she was killed, and so he chopped her into pieces, which is kind of reminiscent of these oxen being chopped up, and sent her out to bring the armies of Israel together, not to attack an enemy, but to attack the tribe of Benjamin, which was defending this uh, immoral city of Gibeah. And you remember, the upshot of the whole matter was, that all of the tribe of Benjamin was annihilated with the exception of 600 men. 600 men were left, there were no females left in the, in the tribe of Benjamin because the Israelites had gone through and methodically annihilated the tribe. And when they ended up with only 600 Benjamites, suddenly, you remember, they woke up. Whoops, do we really want to do this? We, do we want to wipe a whole tribe out of Israel? No, I don't think we ought to do that. And so they, they were in a dilemma. What are we going to do? We've got to find wives for these guys. Some of them probably already had wives, but they had been killed. And so they, they thought, how are we going to find wives? None of us want to give our daughters to these despicable people. And so you remember what they did was they took a role. They took a role amongst the, the, the people that were there in the army. And they said, well, what city didn't send any troops to this united force? And they discovered that Jabesh Gilead hadn't sent any men to this force. And so remember what they decided to do? They said, we're going to punish Jabesh Gilead. So they marched on Jabesh Gilead. They captured the city, and they annihilated the population except for the virgin girls, who were old enough to be, soon at least, to be wives. In other words, probably girls from 12 on up to however old they were still virgins at that particular time. They married fairly young in those days, so we're probably talking about 12 to 17, 18-year-olds probably. And there were about 400 of those. And they gave them, you remember, to the 600 men were, and then they had to get 200 from elsewhere and you, you may remember that story. Jabesh-Gilead had been wiped out. Jabesh-Gilead had been depopulated. But we're talking about the same city now. Obviously, in the intervening years, however many years it was, several decades certainly, the city had been rebuilt and repopulated. Strangely, it's now facing another attack. If you want to go back in time and live in a city, don't choose Jabesh Gilead. <laughs> They're now faced with this huge army. Army large enough that they knew they probably could not win in a siege, but not so large that they didn't, weren't willing to at least dicker with them about the whole situation. And so in a desperate bid to survive, the leaders of Jabesh Gilead attempted to negotiate with Nahash. Now, what they do seems logical. What Nahash does seems illogical. Nahash, however, obviously feels confident. I've got all the cards. I've got the city surrounded. I can starve them to death if necessary. Uh, Israel is just a bunch of chickens, and and they'll never be a threat to me anyway. And so, and and of course, he didn't want to sit there for a long siege. And he thought, if I can make a deal, whereby I don't lose any men in attacking the walls of this city. Now, how large was the city of G- Jabesh Gilead? Well, we don't know. If we go back to the time before when uh, they wiped out the city and found 400 virgins, just, just making some rough calculations from that, the city was probably a city of at least 5,000 in, in total population. 5,000 population, you divide that in half, 2,500 men, you take out the boys that are too young and the men are too old, you end up with probably at least a thousand men that could defend the walls of the city. Now, it's a small city. I've I've mentioned this before, that those who have studied siege warfare in the pre-gun time will tell you that roughly it takes 20 attackers to every one defender to actually overcome a walled city held by determined defenders. So, if there were a thousand defending the walls, there would have to have been at least 20,000 in the Ammonite army to, to hope to succeed. Now, the army may have been larger than that. We're not told how large the army was. But Nahash was willing to negotiate. And, and so that tells you that he didn't want to sit forever to starve the city, and he didn't want to lose any men attacking the walls if he could avoid it. And so he, makes, he agrees to make a covenant. But he says, I will make this covenant only on the basis of your willingness to submit to maiming. I'm going to gouge the right eye out of every single person in the city of jabesh Gilead. Now, had they said okay, they would have deserved what they got. Why? Because God had made it very clear that His people were to make no covenant with the people of the land of Canaan in reference to all of the peoples of Canaan. It didn't matter if they were in the official land or over in the Transjordanian area. God had said in the book of Exodus, you shall make no covenant with them or their gods, period. No exception. What we see here is something of the character of Nahash. Nahash had great disdain for Israel. It was so great that he was going to force the Israelites to live with a constant reminder of their weakness and their inferiority. How is he going to do that? By blinding every single member of the population of Jabesh Gilead so that forever as long as they lived, not only would the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manassites, but all of Israel would be reminded of the fact they couldn't even save their own people. What kind of God do they have? Obviously, the God of Israel is too weak to defend his people. Well, the people of Jabesh-Gilead, fortunately, wisely, said, ah, okay, let's go to plan B. <laughs> so they were desperately looking for a better option. And so they, they made what could have been sort of a forlorn hope. They asked Nahash to give them seven days. Now he was under no obligation to do this. And not only that, He said, let us send messengers through your lines to the rest of Israel to see if we can get any help. Can you imagine that? We got you you guys in the corner right where we want you. but we're going to let you send out and see if you can get some help to get out of this situation. Like I say, it it tells us something of the character of Nahash. He was arrogant. (laughs) The scripture, of course, tells us that pride cometh before a fall. They promised Nahash that if no help came, they would submit to his harsh terms. And he was certain no help would come. He had so little belief that Israel could mount a force to defeat him. So he allowed messengers through his line. Go right on through. See if you can get any of those willy-nilly people up there to help you. I know you can't. You might get a few ragtag individuals, but I'm not going to worry about it. We can understand this kind of contempt. You and I see it today. We briefly watched a couple of biographies last night of George Bush and his wife and so forth. And part of one of the speakers um, referred to the radical right, you know, throws everybody who's not a liberal leftist into the radical right, you know. And, of course, the radical right are evangelical Christians. They are really radical right. And these people have such disdain. I mean, they consider anybody who holds to Judeo-Christian beliefs as the scum of the earth, as opposed to modern civilization, as not seeing the advancement of the human race as it ought to be, standing for putting people back into the chains of the medieval world or some such thing. It's very fascinating that Israel faced such contempt again later on many occasions, but one in particular I want to note to you from 2 Kings chapter 18. This is 400 years later, and this is a far greater king. Nehash was, you know, petty sheik, leading a group of guys out there in the desert. We're talking about the king of the mightiest empire of this part of the world at the time period, 400 years later. This is the king of Assyria. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, we read at verse 19. Then Rabshakeh, this is the spokesman on behalf of the king of Assyria. Then Rabshakeh said to them, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? You say, but they are only empty words, I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you rely that you've rebelled against me? Now behold you rely on the staff of this crushed reed even on Egypt on which if a man leans it will go into his hand and pierce it so pharaoh king of Egypt so is pharaoh king of Egypt to all who rely on him but if you say to me we trust in the Lord our God is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part even to put riders on them. (laughs) I mean, talk about arrogance. I'll give you the 2,000 horses if you even got 2,000 men that could ride them. You don't even have 2,000 warriors in that whole city of Jerusalem. I mean, that's the height of arrogance and disdain. And, of course, what happened to Sennacherib happened also, of course, to Nahash. They were defeated because they challenged the God of Israel, who is, of course, truly God. Well, by the roads of that day, the messengers had a, a bit of, distance to go from Jabesh Gilead. They had to go down through the the gorge here and up on the other side to the highlands. And then they had to come, run down here and of course they would stop at Tirzah and Shechem and Shiloh and deliver the message as they went. And they finally got down here to Gibeah. Now it's about 70 miles by road. And they couldn't hop in their, you know, Mercedes and go ripping on down their flags flying. We're the official messenger of the city of Jabesh Gilead. No. They had to, at the very best, ride an animal, and at the worst, run to carry the messengers, the message. And so I, I really doubt that the message could have gotten from Jabesh-Gilead to, to Gibeah in less than a day and a half, and that would be trucking along. As was true, probably, as they spread the word along the way, the people of, Gil- Gil- of Gibeah mourned the impending tragedy. They, they cried out to God, why is this tragedy happening? Why is this happening to Jabesh Gilead, our people? Interestingly, uh, verse 5 of this 11th chapter informs us that Saul was out working in the field with the oxen. What kind of king was he? He's supposed to be doing king things, not plowing the ground with your oxen. But, but he had no capital. He had no government to lead. He didn't have to worry about appointing secretary of this, that, and the other thing, getting it past the Senate. Up to this point, he didn't have anybody but a few valiant men, and we don't know that those valiant men were still around. Maybe some of them were. He had no precedent to follow. He was the number one king, the first one. He couldn't look in the books and say, well, what did so-and-so do when he became king? No, no. There was no precedent for him to follow. So he was doing the only logical thing, working the family farm waiting for further instructions or at least an inspiration to do whatever kings are supposed to do. When Saul came into town, he heard all the lamenting, the, 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 the outcry of the people at the bad news that they had heard and, and all of this emotion. Uh, and so he stopped and he wanted to know what had triggered all this outburst of emotion here. So someone filled him in that Jabesh Gilead was facing imminent destruction. I think the messengers themselves had run on. They had delivered the message of Gibeah. They probably ran on down towards Bethlehem and, and on down towards Hebron to carry the word, trying to garner some support somewhere. Somebody come and help us. <laughs> the word had come to Gibeah. Saul was their king. Saul lived in Gibeah. Everybody in Gibeah knew Saul was their king. So why didn't anybody run right out to Saul in the field and hail him down and say, hey, this is happening? Nobody bothered to even go out and tell him. They waited until he came to town and then he had to ask somebody. Why was their king not immediately informed? Well, I I think the answer to that can be found in three thoughts. First, Israel was still thinking tribally. They were not thinking nationally. They were just kind of mourning, Oh, our brothers are going to get killed. They weren't thinking, How can we go help our brothers? They were just wailing that this was going to happen to them like it was inevitable. Well, they're way over there, and, you know, it's sorry that that's going to happen, but what does that have to do with us? We'll mourn for you. Now, remember, even during the era of the Shofat, the Shofat team, the Shofats were not national leaders. They were regional leaders. And, and, and what they dealt with, they dealt with locally, and, the, and they didn't call troops in from all corners of the, uh, of the Israelite nation. Secondly, Saul was unschooled and untried. He'd never exhibited any leadership qualities. He'd never been in a leadership position in his life. He knew r- apparently little about the military or military activity and, and even less about political activity. So not too many people are th- automatically thought, oh, Sco- Saul knows the answer. He- he's a great leader. No. And then thirdly, Saul's personality didn't inspire confidence. He didn't have that self-assured charisma of a natural born leader. So he plowed the fields out of sight, out of mind, even in his hometown. But I think what we'll discover is that God allowed the siege of Jabesh Gilead to occur so that he could bring Saul onto center stage. This will be his first action as King of Israel, and it will be a brilliant action, it will be a successful action, and what a way to to bring the King to the place of being accepted by the whole nation as King. Of course, I think part of it will be to get on with the program, because God had said, you demand a King, you will live to rue the day that you have demanded the King, and God's moving on towards that goal because as Saul carries out his 40-year reign, we're going to discover towards the end of his reign, many people rude the day that Saul had ever been named king in Israel. Well, we'll look further at what happened here next week.